holding pocket. It's time now for the chipping forecast, issued by Folding Pocket on behalf of Andrew Cotter, Eddie Pepperell and special guest Ian Carter. Welcome to the Chipping Forecast. Uh, chipping Forecast come thick and fast at the moment at the Ryder Cup. One yesterday, one today, like the uh, like the daily Chipping Forecast. Steering you through choppy waters of the Ryder Cup. Choppy waters technically again, so we're doing our very best here. Ian Carter and I, our special guest, are huddled together, actually for warmth, because the air conditioning is cranked up in the, in the media centre here at Marcus Simone. But more importantly, because um, for some reason, I was in a booth about 10 feet away and my internet didn't work very well. And you seem to have better internet than me, so we are together and sharing a sharing a microphone. Hello, Bean. Hello, Andrew. Yeah, so um, maybe it's just your laptop, I don't know. But anyway, we're, we're here, we're talking, and um, we're at the Ryder Cup. Eddie's here as well, but not here. Not in here. So this is, I mean, this is absurd, isn't it? We're just having to fling a microphone back between one another. And Eddie is there. Look at Eddie chuckling away. He's, uh, he's energized after his trip to Ibiza with Ebenezer Good. And uh, how are you, Eddie? Are you, you're at home and all systems go? I don't know the name of the band, but uh, I remember Top of the Pops 25 years ago and there was two pantsomish looking guys who used to share a microphone. I think they were blonde, but you might know who they were called. And it just you just reminded me of them there. Actually, very funny. <laughs> two guys who used to share a microphone, two blonde guys in the 80s. If you can remember who two blonde people were in the 1980s, get in touch. Pet Shop Boys, apparently, no, it was later than that. I, I'm saying it was in the 90s. I wasn't alive in the 80s. It would have been the late 90s. Oh, are you talking about Bros? No. Could be Bros. Jedward. Right. Jedward. <laughs> anyway, right. Okay, well, we'll get on to all such um, matters. Ryder Cup and uh, invariably some silliness. Just uh, some serious and uh, sad news uh, um, in golf that the, the greatest, I think, the greatest British amateur golfer of all time, a golf administrator, Sir Michael Banalak, died uh, yesterday. We got that news five times the English amateur champion, five times the amateur champion, nine times a Walker Cup player, and he was secretary of the army, I think what we now call chief executive throughout the 80s and 90s. Uh, last month, he managed to make it to the opening ceremony for the for the Walker Cup. And um, we, I mean, all 75 past Walker Cup players were there, but we gave him special mention and the ovation that he got was long and loud and it was very, very touching indeed. We... Um, we have uh, we we knew Michael reasonably well. We embarrassed ourselves on the golf course in front of Michael, didn't we? Ian? Well, we did. It was it was God, It was a long time back. I think it must have been two thousand and two, and it was um, just as I was. It was the the Open was going to be at Muirfield, and there was a match uh, between the Golf Foundation and BBC Five Live back in those days, and we were invited to play, and we were paired to play against Sir Michael, and I in those days was the tennis correspondent. So I'd spent the previous six weeks solidly covering tennis, hadn't touched my golf clubs at all. And we got onto the first tee and we were discussing handicaps. And I, I said, oh, he said, what's your handicap? I said, a very rusty eight. And he said, "Is a no such thing as rusty. And I promptly to topped it about 30 yards down the middle of the fairway. But after that, as I remember, I played really well and you had a nightmare. I, I often have nightmares on the course, but I, yes, I played with, we played that day and she later. So I also played with them the, the same day, Walmer and Kingsdown ahead of us in George's Open, must have been 2003, and snap, hooked my way around. So uh, anyway, he was, a, he was a lovely man. He was, he was obviously a brilliant golfer as well, but very generous. Good fun as well. Great fun. I, I visited him because I had the, the privilege of doing the book for the 150th Open, and I interviewed him, and, and half the stories he told me I simply couldn't use in a book such as that because he had a real sense of mischief and it was a great gossip as well. But as an administrator of the game, 1983 to 1999 as the secretary of the RNA, really important time for the Open to maintain its relevance in the world game with so much competition from America. And he did it with style and dignity and insight. Um, and was one of the great administrators of the game, as well as one of the greatest amateurs to ever play the game. And a lovely, lovely man, very generous, 
warm spirited, humorous, and as I say, gossipy, told me some really, really good stories, which obviously couldn't go into the public domain, but were, were very funny and, and really enlightening. But you can now share them on this podcast. So we look forward to that. Anyway, Michael Benal will be greatly missed. Uh, so to the Ryder Cup, here we are at Marco Simone. Um, do you want the origin of the name Marco Simone, why it's called Marco Simone? Uh, whether you want it or not, you're getting it. Uh, the course was built on a piece of land that was, I think it was 89 it was founded, or thereabouts, he said vaguely. Anyway, built on a piece of land that was part of that hamlet called Marco Simone, and that in turn had taken its name from Marco di Simone, son of the Roman noble Simone Tibaldi, who in 14, 1457 built the estate. So good, good chat, Andrew. Uh, Eddie, you know this course pretty well. It is, it's my first time seeing it. I think Ian's, uh, you've been out for a, a recce before, but um, it's a hilly, it's a hilly old course, as they say. Um, and it's, it's hot this week. So it's going to be, it's going to be a bit of graft for the, the players. Caddies, poor caddies out there. Pity them, Eddie. Yeah, I, I think um, they're standbagging it, are they not? Um, standbagging, not sandbagging. And uh, that makes sense. I think it's um, it's a very difficult walk. As you say, the three years we've played the Italian, two have been in September when it's been 30 degrees and the players and caddies alike have been absolutely shattered at the end of the week. So the physical element to this week is not to be underestimated. I think it's un, um, probably unprecedented, really, in terms of the challenge that that faces for these guys, uh, in terms of what they faced before in historic Ryder Cups. And it, it'll be interesting to see how much of a consideration that is for the captains, whether, you know, your top guys go and play five five rounds or whether maybe the max that any of them play is four. But I would think a few of them will play five. But uh, for the caddies especially, I wouldn't be surprised if there's some substitutions. Oh, uh, Billy Foster, I had a chat with him about the course yesterday. He said that he was standbagging it through, all the way through practice and then big bag for the big bag for the tournament, but he was cutting golf balls and tees to a minimum. So you have six tees for the whole round. No, I didn't. But he said he was absolutely, well, you don't, you don't need what you don't need are waterproofs and things and all the, all the drinks, et cetera, that caddies would usually have to have in the bag are, are in the carts, the buggies following the groups. So there is a little bit of of help there. But anyway, I did notice that uh, the rough is not as it was. And again, Billy said, no, they've chopped it down a little bit since that recce that they had. So it's not quite as penal. It's sort of got about 15 yards of lush stuff. And then if you go wide of it, you're into sort of broken down links style roughing. Yes. And what clearly what they, they've done, and they did this in, in Paris, Eddie, as well, is is narrowing the bottleneck of the fairway at the sort of peak landing area for what they perceive to be the Americans, I think. So they're issuing a huge challenge. And, you know, the weird thing is that obviously th this European team has big hitters like Rory and John Rahm and, and uh, Nikolai Hoygaard. You go down it. I mean, I don't think we're any shorter than, or say we, Europe are any shorter than, than America. But I think there is a perception that we're better or Europe are better at hitting in from a little bit longer out. Does that kind of tally, would you say? Quite possibly. I, I don't know the stats directly for that type of um, proxy, you know, range as you allude to there. I think the difference for me between this course and Paris is that the Golf National, you know, it was there are a lot of straight holes. So you can be as far up the hole as you want, but you did need to be on the fairway. Marcus Simone is just not like that, as you've seen. There's a lot more dog legs and there are naturally places where you think it's most sensible to play to uh so the key really will be discipline off the tee for the guys and i had an interesting chat actually with adam um john rams caddy at wentworth on the friday morning and he had said that their goal for the week of wentworth was to lead the fairways in reg stats because they felt that it was important that john got into his mind you know getting away from just bombing at 330 out there and instead start to play with some discipline and, and think about fairways being the number one issue which i thought was interesting given the status of that event in and of itself but he told me that john hit 12 fairways on the thursday and that was his barometer of success for wentworth so you know these guys are already getting it in their minds that accuracy off the tee and discipline off the tee is key that also means that there are going to be more mid irons hit in and um when i think about this course there are a few par fours where you if you can have you can have the ability to hit a seven or an eight or a six iron very high you're going to have a huge advantage and um you know, it's going to be interesting to see how the pairings match up to to relate to that. Well, let's hear from uh, the big boss uh, who you mentioned there in John Rahm. All the players have been uh, speaking to Ian. This uh, 
It's Ian, what, I mean, let's talk about Ian standing in the game. He was just parked by a hedge and all the players were wheeled to him. Ian didn't have to move. The players were just ushered in. Uh, six of them yesterday, six of them today. And it's like a, it's like a, an audience with the queen. You're just brought in to see the queen, Ian, uh, who's <laughs> standing there. Queen's dead. I, um, as the Smiths sang. Great they, album. Uh, great album. A great album. So, um, yes, but anyway, you've talked to them all and John Ram, well, I mean, all of them, because I was eavesdropping most of them, very, very interesting conversations. But I want to hear from John Ram, so here he is talking to Ian. John, fantastic to see you. Uh, Ryder Cup week has finally arrived. Mm -hmm. Is it like waiting for Christmas, this? God, in a lot of ways, yes. In a lot of ways, it's almost more than waiting for Christmas. Um, we've had a little bit more of a wait between, you know, the FedEx Cup season and, and the Ryder Cup. We did have Wentworth in between, which was nice to diffuse a little bit of the attention from from the Ryder Cup but yeah it's, uh, it's been a little bit more anticipation in my in my experience this year and why is that is that because of what happened two years ago no like I said because we had more time off <laughs> more time to think about it and more people ask me questions about it uh, obviously we all want to get back the cup right we all want to rectify what happened at Wesley Straits but we can't do that today obviously uh, we have to take each day as it is and enjoy every part of it how different does Italy feel compared with with France and your your first home Ryder oh, Cup experience very different mainly because I didn't know what to expect after two Ryder Cups you really know what the deal is and what the drill is going to be so it's a very different feeling but the anticipation almost gets bigger because you know what's coming and you know how much fun it's going to be so uh, yeah it's a uh, it's a weird mix of emotions comparing to the first time right the first time you're almost a little bit panicked because of how big of an event it is and how much you've dreamed of being a part of it. And this, this time is more of, a, you know, knowing what's going to happen and, and just knowing what's to come, right? And almost focusing more on what's happening right now than what, what's going to be in the future. Famously, you beat Tiger Woods in the singles in Paris. I wonder how often you, you think back to that. We all saw how much it, it meant to you. And I, I guess more to the point, was that the moment that you knew you were a Ryder Cup player, you, you know what I mean, it's, uh, or not? <laughs> well, I knew it was before, but it was my first point on the Ryder mm. Cup, so that was obviously very important. Um, uh, how much do I think about it? Obviously, I have great memories from it, and uh, yes, I did beat Tiger, but uh, it wasn't the best version of Tiger that we had even seen that year, right? So uh, even though it's still a big accomplishment because of the name, I think my reaction was more because it was my first point ever in the Ryder Cup, and... I think all that emotion just came out yeah. at that moment. Um, but yeah, obviously I have really good memories from it, but I don't think, you know, I'm not constantly thinking about it. You come here as a US Open champion and the Masters champion. So the perception is that you are a leader in this team room. And I wonder if that is the case, what that means. Oh, uh, it's not my job to self-appoint myself a leader, right? Usually the better man for a job like that is the one person that doesn't want it. <laughs> you just simply are. Right, uh, and I think it's up more up to my teammates to see me as that than myself. I'm always open for for anybody if they have questions. I'm always willing to give advice, and it's my job as a teammate to give advice. And it's also my job to be the best version of myself to them. Right? Uh, I always say the best way somebody can lead is by example. And if I'm the best version of myself in every aspect of the day and every each day, they're going to obviously uh, see that themselves. So there we are, John Rahm, and um, I mean you could. You could hear it there. Just, I just thought, well, I, I, I tried to find different ways to get into each of the interviews, and I just thought, you know, has it been like waiting for Christmas? And you, you, you heard there just the level of excitement within him. And this is someone who's won a U.S. Open, is the reigning Masters champion. And for me, like the Bob McIntyre interview that we put out a couple of weeks ago, it just shows how this the Ryder Cup just elevates golf to a to a completely different level. I love I love talking to him because when he puts his mind into it, he is so eloquent and in a second language as well. Eddie, I don't know what you think, but when you hear a player of his standing so reverential towards the Ryder Cup, how does that permeate down to, to players of your ilk who are playing week in, week out on the DP World Tour? It's pretty inspirational. I, I actually watched the captain's dinner on Sky Sports um, yesterday and I thought it was fantastic. And uh, Luke Donald put a nice three minute video out, you know, as well on Twitter, just uh, going through the locker room and the setup. And I think, 
you do get an idea or a sense, don't you, that these guys who have played Ryder Cups and more than one, as you say, they revere the event and it's the most special week for them that they look forward to. So it's clearly something I've not experienced, but it's clearly an amazing experience in and of itself. And I think with John as well, the Seve connection or the Spanish connection is is clearly there. So, um, you know, it's, yeah, I, tough for me to say because I haven't been there, but it's uh, it's pretty cool. Yeah, but I, that video of going through the team room and the whole setup, and what I was struck by that was just how, I mean, it was transformed by Tony Jackman, et cetera, that year, and going over in Concord and wanting for for for, for nothing. Because in the past, European players and Great Britain Ireland players before that and Great Britain players before that, they 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 really did feel like second-class citizens. They felt almost beaten before they got on the course against them. Um, the United States because their pros were so well catered for and there was a lot more money. Um, and now you just look at it and think, and that's part of what sets the team up to challenge is that you, you're wanting for nothing. Players, you used to talk about the players you used to talk about, I wish we were paid for, for this week. And actually, we'll get on to that. We're going to do a, a retrospective on Brookline later on in the pod. And you know, I remember the American players that year, a few of them complaining about not being paid for the event. But my goodness, they are catered for, their every whim is taken care of. And that's certainly the case for Europe now. What I'm disappointed by, Ian, and that chat you had with John Ram is that we talked in yesterday's pod about Rory McIlroy saying that John Ram was 110 kilos and he played back row. And I said, I don't believe he's 110 kilos. He's got to be under that. And we were going to have a guest John Ram's weight competition and you were going to get verification of it. And you chatted to him instead about serious matters. You're saying I bottled it? I think you might have under the intense stare of he's, he's an intimidating guy. I don't blame you for bottling it. He's just a, an intimidating figure. So, And what weight do you think John Rahm is? I said I thought he was more closer to 105 than 110. And what weight would you say John Rahm is, Eddie? Uh, I'm going to say that the very high 90s, 9900. High 90s, hundreds. Rory McIlroy said 110. Andrew thinks I bottled it. Have a listen. I have two fun questions to, to, to finish with. Um, one is Rory McIlroy's fault because uh, he, when he was at the rugby, he was discussing which of the Ryder Cup team might, be, might make a rugby player. And he claimed you were 110 kilos. I'm not, I don't want to pry, but are we higher or lower? Because it's important for, he, for rugby He wasn't things. sure I was higher than that. I'm higher, yeah. I'm, yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm around 115. They're bigger than me, though. They're bigger and faster than me, so I don't know how I would, I would do. Uh, <laughs> but would you fancy rugby? Yes and no. The idea is great. I think after the first tackle, I would I would not be happy about it. I uh, well well well. We don't win our weight in John Rams there for that. I mean Eddie, a hundred and fifteen kilos. He says that's. I mean I'm I'm staggered by that because I, I, you know a good loose head prop back row would be a hundred and fifteen to hundred and twenty. And these rugby players are a different level of size. You know, people used to say in American football terms, oh, um, Brooks Koepka, Bryson DeChambeau, they could be a linebacker. No, they couldn't. They would get absolutely pulverized. But 115 kgs. That's extraordinary. I, yeah, I mean, that's that's 35 kilos heavier than me. And a lot of people think I'm a big guy. Um, he's got to be the heaviest here then. I mean, Sepp Stracker's obviously coming in at, you know, a significant weight too, I would have thought. But John, heaviest, heaviest in the Ryder Cup? Well, I mean, that is, in old money, 18 stone. I don't think... I mean, that's heavier than Tim Heron. Uh, that's that's Tim Heron and Colin Montgomery on his shoulders. Tim Heron walking around with Monty piggybacking. That's 40 kilos heavier than me, and I'm I'm enormously powerful. So uh, <laughs> that's a whole that's a whole Ian Carter heavier than me. That's 43 kilos heavier than me. So what we're saying is we're all decidedly feeble. He is a big, big guy. Anyway, but the thing about John Ram, just quick finishing him, he is... I joked about him being an intimidating figure to to interview. He is a big presence. He gets so fired up for the Ryder Cup. Again, you can hear it there. And that passion, you know, that, that feeds the crowd and they feed it back. And he's going to be a tough man to beat this week. And it looks like he's going to be playing with Tyrrell Hatton. I was just chatting with Tyrrell and, and said, you know, what is it about the partnership between you and him? And he, he said, well, we get on very well together. He said, we're both very fiery, um, which is obvious. And I, I did make the point to Hatton that, you know, some partnerships are all about the yin and yang, but that is a yang and yang partnership, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And um, what makes a partnership tick, like you say, it's sometimes just difficult to uh, to know. Clearly, importantly, that they get on. I mean, it's the other thing I picked up from the captain's dinner watching on 
TV last night, that that was a big factor in consideration in all the captains is that the guys have to feel comfortable in one another's company and get on very well so that when things aren't going great during a round, they, um, you know, they don't take it, they don't take it personally or they don't get upset with one another. So it's, um, Clearly, John and Tyrrell have that relationship, and that's um, that's great. That captain's dinner, because we're I'm not seeing we're not seeing the sky coverage here. So they showed what was this the dinner, and what detail did they show it in? It was um, Nick Doherty hosted Thomas Bjorn, Colin Montgomery, and Paul McGinley just over a three course oh. course dinner, and then just talked about you know their experiences as captains as Ryder Cup, and it was very very insightful. Honestly, one of the best things I've seen actually on television for quite a long time, apart from maybe the Solheim Cup, but uh, it was uh, very very good. Well, that's what I want. I, I had that written down to talk about. Does captaincy matter in the Ryder Cup? Because, I mean, Paul Azinger in 2008, everyone said that one, where Falder was the European captain, one captain was brilliant and one was not so. And Paul Azinger has made a sort of subsequent career out of that. He wrote the successful book, Cracking the Codes, where they had these pods of players going out uh, in practice and they would become partnerships. And, but I, I kind of have this feeling, and it's no more than a feeling, that captaincy is slightly overblown, the importance of it. If your players play well, then you can be made to look a very good captain. If your players don't play well, then you then the captain sort of, oh, what a poor captaincy. Now, in 2008, Faldo hasn't, you know, he wasn't a good captain at all. He, did, he hadn't gone into the detail. McGinley, by contrast, in 2014, it was all about the detail. Is that overblown how much effect a captain can have when the players have to do it on the course? Well, I would say so. I mean, and I think they would also acknowledge that, and they did during the program. They can only do as much as they can do up until the first ball is hit, and they recognise that. And, you know, players are what matter at the end of the day and obviously the way they play. But I do think when you listen to them talk and them in terms of they spend so much time now between getting the job and the first ball being hit, spending time with players and teams around players, that I think that it's an increasingly important role. And when it's done very well and thoroughly, then I think the players respond to that and clearly the personality of the captain is another big thing and the respect and they talk so glowingly about sam torrance and tony jackling jacklin and you can just tell the influence that those people had on them and their times at Ryder cups and i think that's that's pretty telling well in sport there is this culture of fine margins and just giving you and your players just the the slightest edge can prove crucial and and that's i think what the captain's role is it's funny, um, Eddie and Andrew, um, last week at the Solheim Cup when Europe lost the first four points in the foursomes, um, you know, there were eyebrows being raised almost out of the roof at some of the decisions that had been taken by Suzanne Pettersson. I remember sitting down and just writing a list of the things that I thought she had got wrong. And lo and behold, you know, this almighty comeback occurred and, you know, she's, she's utterly triumphant, albeit in a, in a tie drawn halved match, um, which is, uh, <laughs> we, we, yeah, we, we, which just kind of goes to prove the point that you can overblow the role of the captain. Uh, talking to Matt Fitzpatrick today, you know, he, he's talking about how good Luke Donald's communication has been. And he compared it directly with the captains that he served under before Darren Clark and Padre Carrington. And he actually kind of put them under the bus saying that he didn't really know what his role would be. He, that he didn't get to play as much as he wanted to. And that he felt very uncertain in those weeks compared with this week where he, he feels that he knows exactly what's expected of him, when he's going to be playing, when he's going to be resting and all of that kind of thing. So the players obviously have enormous respect for Luke Donald this week. But then again, I've never done a Ryder Cup where you do these preview interviews and they say, well, actually, I don't think much of the captain. So it's it's a difficult one. Yeah, and I, but I think the captain needs to recognise what kind of individual, what kind of person they are. I mean, let's face it, Luke Donald is not a particularly inspiring individual, right? You don't listen to him talk and feel up the way you would when you listen to other people. But he, I think he knows that. And so that's why he's put in place a team that is very structured, organized, has made the plans in advance and the players can respect in a different kind of way the captaincy that Luke's going to offer. And so I think that would be a very different type of captaincy clearly to somebody like Seve, who's an inspirational captain and you're feeding off, even if there's a lack of a plan, you're feeding off the individual. So it's having that awareness about yourself clearly. And I think Luke's got that in abundance. And um, and just one thing on the Solheim, I was struck by 
every interview afterwards, they all said just how much they wanted to do it for Suzanne. They were saying they loved Suzanne. And that just goes to show, doesn't it, how influential and important she has been. Did you see that report today about um, Celine Boutier, that um, she had played with, um, with Georgia Hall in the morning on the first day and then came in and said that she didn't want to play with her in the afternoon? Uh, was that because of the way that she felt George was playing that it was going to reflect badly on her? And, and then Suzanne Pedersen said, well, you can have, okay, Leona Maguire, and that she didn't want to play with her either. And that Suzanne Pedersen then benched Boutier because if you don't want to play with, you know, I'm giving you players to play with. And this is, I mean, that's, if that is true, that's quite extraordinary. Yeah, well, that was one of the big questions that we had. Um, over her captaincy was why on earth was Celine Boutier being rested in the afternoons, given that she is the most informed European golfer of the of the summer, having won the, the Scottish Open and the Evian Championship, loads of confidence, and having had such a successful partnership in the past with Georgia Hall. So it just made no sense. And actually, you know, people wandering around and saying something must have gone on here. And that's the kind of thing that, that happens in, in these weeks. It's going to be really interesting over the next three days, just trying to detect signs of any kind of discontent in either camp, how the captains are dealing with it. They'll be trying to disguise that. And, of course, it all comes out in the, in the wash afterwards. Um, so, so, yeah, it's all about, I, you know, I, I think you're right, Eddie, it's, it's about generating harmony, trust, and, and creating an atmosphere in which the players feel secure and from that launch pad, they're then able to perform. Yeah. And one thing on that and treading carefully here, she's French. And when you get the French, if you look at other team sports, when you get them playing as a team, they're formidable, but they're as individuals, very flair, flary. They're, you know, they have their own, they're clearly strong minded. And I, and I'm not a little, I'm not that surprised that Celine Boucher, not knowing her, but just knowing her nationality, that that's what has come out. And um, I don't think Luke's going to have that problem. Uh, not to pick on the French, but uh, it's um, it, I don't think Luke's going to have that problem and, and egos definitely get left at the door. And I think that that's abundantly clear, certainly in the Ryder Cup. Well, that's the French done by Eddie. So if you want to uh, send your thoughts from France to Eddie Pepperell. The Germans next week. Oh, Germans next week. So uh, on we go to think through Europe, uh, laying waste to with the generalizations. Well, there's something, possibly something in it. Who knows? Uh, one thing in Luke Donald, I was I was slightly concerned about one part of his performance this week, but I had my fears assuaged yesterday because I, I was standing by the tee and he was there and uh, I just said, look, just a quick, quick question about uh, the opening ceremony. And he said, it's, it's lowered down your list of priorities, I'm sure. Uh, but how are you saying Ludwig's name? And he said, it's Aubert all the way because he did a, it's, oh, I'm so excited. He did a he did a function with them and the family as well, and so he's uh, he's fully on board the Ober Express, and so now it's just just Sky the outlier as well, and America and the United States of America as a whole, but everyone else is uh, is fully on board, so he's going to be up there giving it giving yeah legacy, isn't it? Our legacy, the Chipping Forecast legacy to the world, is the the name of. Ludwig Ober, anyway. And my xenophobia. <laughs> yes, and, and Eddie's xenophobia as well. Our gift to the world from the Chipping Forecast. There's captaincy today. We'll get on to Eddie's partnerships in a moment, but there is captaincy today because there is a celebrity tournament going on. Novak Djokovic is playing. I've got the... So Monty's, Monty is captain uh, of the European side, Corey Pavin. So this is effectively a rematch of, uh, of 2010, isn't it? Monty's captain of the European side, Corey Pavin's captain of the uh um, it's an american side because cody paven's got andrea shevchenko Catherine newton she's an american actress victor cruz uh don't know carlos Sainz, he's a ferrari driver isn't he and tomaso perino who is uh an italian person and i don't know i don't know what he does colin montgomery's got gareth bale uh he's got dude perfect <laughs> what stalwag dude perfect said uh, the man who's entirely sure of who they are, uh, Leonardo Fioravanti, Novak Djokovic, and Kip Popart, who is uh, who is uh, one of the G4D golfer disability golfers, who is uh, just about the best out there. So uh, Novak Djokovic, that's an astonishing get. And there were suggestions that he might be doing a bit of a motivational speech to the European team. 
Oh, that's news to me. Jamie Corrigan on the Telegraph has been writing about that. So uh, we know Jamie and he's seldom wrong. So, I mean, if you've got Novak Djokovic, you'd probably use him, wouldn't you? Well, would you? I don't know. Yes. Yeah, Eddie would look at Eddie, loves Novak Djokovic. So would you like to be motivated by Novak Djokovic? Um, I don't know. I'll, I'll leave that as a no comment. Oh, he's not French, Eddie. You can say what you want. So Dude Perfect. Right. I have looked up Dude Perfect. So Dude Perfect are an American sports and comedy group headquartered in Frisco, Texas. The group consists of, there's only one of them playing here. It's not the whole group playing. The group consists of Tyler, the beard, Tony, the twins, Corey and Kobe Cotton, Garrett, the purple hoser, Hilbert, and Cody, the tall guy, Jones, all of whom are former college roommates at Texas A&M University. Their YouTube channel, and obviously this is why they're here, this is a world, again, that is a, well, it's not quite anathema to me, but the YouTube channel has over 59.5 million subscribers and is the second most subscribed sports channel as well as the 27th most subscribed overall. 59.5 million subscribers. And uh, Dude Perfect's content predominantly consists of videos depicting various trick shots, stereotypes, and stunts. And so it's Garrett, the purple hose, or Hilbert, who is playing uh, today on that side. So... Uh, this does sound like fun, Ian. Sound like um, like a a no laying up of a different genre, don't, don't they? Yes, I've gone into their own website description as well because that was from Wikipedia that uh, that last bit. So website description, um, Dude Perfect has grown into a global phenomenon, reaching millions of fans worldwide with the epic antics you know and love. But there's more to Dude Perfect than just having fun. We're about giving back, spreading joy, and glorifying Jesus Christ. And we're stoked you're part of the crew. So pound it, noggin, and let's go big! Exclamation mark. So there we are. That's dude, dude, perfect. That was all we needed as atheists to be converted. That Andrew. Well, Eddie, you'd be interested in this because obviously, with fifty-nine and a half million subscribers, the sponsorships they have: twenty-three global companies, Nike and Nestle and Gillette, Toyota, AT and T, among them. Dick Sporting Goods. So, um, so yeah, glorifying. Jesus Christ, in partnership with Dick's Sporting Goods, uh, Dude Perfect, the leading sports and entertainment group. They've also, they've also just invested heavily in Burnley Football Club. So they're bringing that particular brand of fun and, and pranks and antics and money to, to Burnley. So as they try and, what, what division are they? And they're trying to get back into the Premiership. Are they Championship? No, they're in the Premier League. They got, got promoted last season when we got relegated. Oh, we, you got relegated. Yeah, Leicester City, but we're doing what Burnley did last season, so we're top of the league in yeah. the championship. Alistair Campbell's a Burnley fan, isn't he? He's a Burnley fan. He is. He's interesting because he was brought up in Leicester, uh, Alistair Campbell, um, but he's a massive Burn Burnley fan. Okay, well, we've got to have a chat about your definition of the word interesting, but... Uh, you asked the question. I did, and you, but you didn't have to qualify by saying, interestingly, he was born in Leicester. It's just he was born in Leicester and he's a Burnley fan. He's Scottish Alistair Campbell. I know he is, yeah. No, absolutely. Why are we talking about Alistair Gamble? I'm really disconcerted by this part because having to share this microphone, you're holding it the whole time and then just thrusting it in front of me with stupid questions about Alistair Gamble. Well, a stupid question. It was just a, it was a stupid statement about Alistair Gamble. Now I have control of the mic. So if you have control of the mic, you have the power. Jimmy Anderson's also a Burnley fan, a producer Ollie is telling us. So, uh, oh, and he's going to be playing at the Dunhill Dunhill Links. Yes, he is. And he is. Yeah, the mic. Right. Um, yeah, I, I, I mean, I haven't really got anything to say on that, but uh, he is. He's a great golf fan, actually, Jimmy Anderson. And um, and he follows me on Twitter. And that is because the nature of my son's sporting, uh, he loves golf, uh, loves cricket. And so that that was the biggest street cred I ever had. And I, uh, when it came up as the notification, Jimmy Anderson is now following you. I was so so excited for him. And then a couple of weeks later, I, I went and showed him again and he unfollowed me, but he's come back again. So that's good. But then there was a horrible, horrible moment when that, when that occurred. Talking of swingers, I'm sure the top of the pops duo were into swing music. Now that I think about it, it was swing. Were, music. It was swing. That's a genre of music, isn't it? Swing. It is a genre of music, yeah, but not I necessarily think... from the nineties, but uh, we're, we're trying to back. work out it. Two blonde men sharing a microphone, quibbling over a mic. Robson and Jerome. Right, okay, so they weren't, they were just massively into cover versions, Robson and Jerome. So actors, mm. uh, Robson Green and Jerome, Jerome K. Jerome. 
two men in a boat, a three men in a boat. I think uh, we need someone to email in. I'm still waiting for that Tiger Woods PJ Tour line, by the way, to be emailed in. But just to confirm, corroborate both my... Robson uh, Green and Jerome... Oh, what was his name? But anyway, he was in Game of Thrones, wasn't he? Jerome, Jerome Kino, former All Black. Jerome Flynn. Is that right? Anyway. Okay, right. Okay, listen, after... Uh, we're just going to take a little pause for thought here and then we're going to come back and do a, a retrospective on the 99 Ryder Cup the Battle of Brookline but uh, anyway here's the big man Hi I'm Colin Montgomery and you're listening to The Chipping Forecast with my good friend Eric Pepperell So here's Monty uh, I'm with them tomorrow in the day that I now don't have to play golf Ian so I'm, I'm delighted about that That is a relief uh, for all concerned isn't it and especially especially you. So you're with Monty, Suzanne Pettersson and Tom Lehman. And then you've got a Faldo McGinley one as well, haven't you? As well. Uh, But none of this is corporate. None of this is corporate. Again, I'm doing it for for charity, the Andrew Cotter Benevolent Fund. Anyway, so yes, there's another course not too far from here we're going to. But I don't have to play golf with my hair clubs and with borrowed shoes and things like that. So that's very good news. Anyway, 1999 Ryder Cup, Eddie, how old were you in 1999? Eight. And do you remember the the Battle of Brookline at all? Yeah, I do, strangely. In fact, I remember very little of my childhood, all the way up to probably when I was 16, 17. But I do, I do remember the uh, Justin Leonard, wasn't it, who ran across the green and the outcry and then... Well, there was Justin Leonard, but it was more, it was more everybody who ran across the green. NBC well, cameramen were running across the green, wives, caddies, uh, significant others, players, other... Anyway, so we'll get to that. But the Battle of Brookline, I think it's only a big rider cup if you get a... Another moniker to go with. It's a battle of Brookline, the war on the shore at KOI, which we did uh, last week. Miracle Medina, so the meh of Marcus Amore. We don't know what it's going to be, but it might. hopefully it'll be something. But a Ryder Cup is a great one if it gets a name. Now, the backdrop to the 1999 Ryder Cup. Um, yes, Ian. I think it will be redemption in Rome if uh, if Europe win coming off the back of a 1990 defeat. Yes, it has to be alliteration, really, doesn't it? Well, we'll think of something. So well, anyway, selection, 19... 19- Selection's always a contentious, or quite often a contentious issue. Mark James was the European captain. He had seven, seven rookies on the team, the European team, which is just extraordinary. Ten automatic picks and two wild cards. The wild cards, he went past Robert Carlson, who was 11th on the list, to Andrew Coltart and Jesper Parnovic. He also, do you remember, he left out Bernhard Langer, who hadn't been playing great golf, but obviously all his experience. And there was a television, it was caught, his discussion, which I think was at the BMW International, Mark James went sort of behind some porta cabins with Bernard Langer to have a discussion and the TV cameras, Sky cameras, caught them. And I think they were suggesting on TV that, ah, delivering the good news to Bernhard. And it was very much not the good news. And Bernhard stoically, although I think he was really quite surprised that he he wasn't given a pick, wasn't given a pick. So that was the makeup of the team. A lot of rookies on the European team. USA, by contrast, had one rookie, and that was the world number two at the time, David Duval. So a, a, a very, very powerful American team, which was described by Jeff Maggart, who was on the American team as the 12 best players in the world. And Payne Stewart said on paper, the Europeans should be caddying for us. So um, that was the, it, but Europe had won 95, 97, and therefore it was, there was a real desperation from the the USA to, to get it back. Um, and, and as I mentioned before, a few of the Americans in that team would be quite adamant that they should be uh, being paid to play that week as well. So there was a little bit of tension coming coming into things. And for all the last day drama, which we'll come to, you've got to acknowledge how well Europe played in the first two days. Didn't lose a single session. They led 6-2 at the end of the first day, 10-6 at the end of the second. The partnerships like the likes of Parnovic and Garcia, Clark and Westwood played really well. Uh, Monty and Paul Laurie, all very strong. And so going into the singles, needing just four points to retain the trophy. And no team had come back from more than two points down on the final day to win the Ryder Cup. But 10-6 lead Ben Crenshaw. Do you remember the press conference, Ian, at the, just before the singles? I have a feeling. I have a feeling. Um, was and, and it was a rallying call because they were going to have to come back from this enormous deficit. Just going back to the pairings, and you mentioned their Monty and, and Laurie. They were sent out first on the first day in the foursomes. And Paul Laurie is very funny about that when he talk, talks about it because he suddenly has a realization. Monty just said, oh, you take the odds. And then, it, it, and because the away team always hits first, 
there was suddenly this very late realization that he would be hitting the very first shot of the the Ryder Cup. I mean, Eddie, have you ever allowed yourself to think what that might be like? I mean, you're the only one here that may have the the chance to do something like that. Just just to, uh, from a professional point of view, I'll just refuse. I would just say that I'm I'm, <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm not doing it. Me and my three wood are just going to sit out until the second. I should have looked up the 2018. I mean, you, you were playing well in 2018. Were you uh, still a long way away from selection? Because we joke about, you know, you're quite self-deprecating about your game, but you wouldn't you wouldn't have been a million miles away, and there's a possibility in the future they might not be a million miles away from a Ryder Cup. But you, you're quite often, you know, oh, I, I don't, I wouldn't belong in a Ryder Cup. But you must feel somewhere that that would be a goal for you. I was close in 2018. I want to say if I'd have won in Denmark, the final counting event, I would have come very close, a bit like Matt. I think I was almost as close as Matt Wallace in terms of the qualification, but yeah, I think Matt, given that he'd won, um, I was 10th on the list, turns out, in 2018. Our producer is the man with all the knowledge, Jesse. I hadn't a clue. Um, Ollie's been stalking me for years, clearly. Uh, I um, No, I mean, I think it's one of those things, isn't it? In my mind, I wouldn't be afraid of playing a Ryder Cup if I qualified for a Ryder Cup. If you qualify for a Ryder Cup, I think you're playing really good golf and uh, and you're confident at the end of the day. And I've never been afraid of the big moments because, frankly, I think my body's responding and your game's there. And uh, the moments that scare me sometimes, if you were to put me on the first tier at Ryder Cup a year ago, the way I was swinging, um, it would have been a very embarrassing moment. It would have been dude far from perfect. But uh, it's, um, you know, down the road, I always think those types of situations don't scare me that much because you you back in yourself because you're confident. Uh, but you would have refused to have taken the first tee shot playing with Monty. Uh, anyway, so we have uh, talked about the the rookie. Oh, the USA clothing, the shirts on the final day because they had photos of all the previous USA teams around there. Uh, the ghosts from the past. It was. Uh, I mean, there's been some bad Ryder Cup clothing in the past, and I'm not. This is not targeting the USA. They were. They were bad at Brookline. They were very bad in 2006 at K-Club. But I would say European clothes in 2006, when you see them now, oh, they're the black they're black bomber jackets or something with the polo necks. With the, um, yeah, there were some, and there was a lot of, a lot of almost lime green going on in 2006. In 2018, I actually did a Ryder Cup clothes fitting. So I was relatively there close. There we are. That's because, how close you were. Yeah, so they come and asked me to do a clothes fitting and the clothing was Italian. And uh, it was something like £400 a shirt. I mean, it was outrageous how expensive the gear was, but it was beautiful. I, I stole three shirts and two pairs of trousers. And uh, yeah, you know, I sold them two years later for a good profit. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I actually don't doubt that that's, that's true. No, the singles. I mean, so much went on in the singles. Um, so you had Jarmo Harmo Sandlin, would it be? I mean, he's Finnish. I mean, he's Swedish, but he was a naturalized Swede, but he was, he was finished by birth. Ian's banging his head on the desk. Anyway, Sandalin, Coltar, Jean van der Velde, they didn't play uh, before the singles as rookies. So they were thrown out there. And this is something that changed from 2002 onwards, really for both teams, in that both teams from then on started stacking the top of the order. Whereas Mark James and the European team sent out um, Sandalin, Coltar, Jean van der Velde, they were going out. So Sandalin played Mickelson. Van der Velde, Davis Love III, and Andrew Coulthard played Tiger Woods, having not played in any sessions before, going straight into the singles. The USA won the first six matches. So the Europe come in with a 10-6 lead. USA won the first six matches, and they weren't even close, the the, the scores in the singles. They were, uh, I mean, I think until you get to Paul Laurie, what, what, have you got the scores there, Ian? Yeah, um, so Lehman beat Westwood 3-2, and two, Sutton 4-2 and two on Clark. Sanderlin lost to Mickelson four and three, six and five on Van der Velt. Um, yeah, and, and they, these guys just hadn't, or several of them hadn't even touched a, a ball. Three and two for Tiger Woods, who was, um, it, Andrew Coltart was robbed in that match, wasn't he? Because I, I remember watching that and just, it was in the ninth hole and someone, well, they, they lost Coltart's ball. Well, Which was ridiculous. Well, the allegation was that a cameraman, well, it was found with a cameraman standing pretty much on it, whether by accident or design. And he says it wasn't too far from the fairway. So they were misdirected, first of all, in terms of where to look for it. And then it turned up after five minutes, it magically turned up. So again, it's, uh, it, it, yeah, it, there, was, there was a lot going, I think, you know, doing well to keep it to three and two against Tiger and singles, who in Ryder Cup singles, at least Tiger has a, has a great record. And then Duval five and four on Parnovic. 
Now, so the first the first point of the final day actually came from Pordrick Harrington. And if you look at it, if you if 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 he'd sent Harrington, I mean, this is obviously if spots and maybes, but if if he'd sent Harrington this order out, Harrington, Jimenez, Olazabal, Montgomery, Garcia, Laurie as the opening six matches, that would have gleaned three and a half points. And that would have taken Europe to 13 and a half points. So how much harder would it have been for Lane and Sutton, Mickelson, Love, Woods and Duval? You know, so we talk about the influence of the captaincy, but having so much inexperience at the top there really brought the Americans back into it. I think the, the atmosphere is the other thing, which obviously you remember from Brooklyn. This is a Boston crowd. This is a, a, a generic Boston sports crowd coming to golf for the first This is the first time the golf had really seen. Yes, there was uh, Keough Island and the war on the shore, but that was nothing like Brookline. And I think that's why it took a lot of people by surprise. Now, in, in the United States, they'll still talk about it now as a great atmosphere, a sports atmosphere, and times have changed since then. But in 1999, when you're hit with this wall of, of, of spiky, at times really offensive Boston supporters, that, that, that shocked people. So uh, uh, Sandlin um, was fumbling around for his marker at one point, couldn't find a marker, and Boston fans shouted, hey, Yarmo, you need a, a coin? And he actually said yes. And so coins rained down on him. Uh, Colin Montgomery's father, uh, James, he was getting all sorts of abuse. I mean, Monty is not the best person to, because they know they could get to Monty, and they were winding him up, and he was responding. And Payne Stewart, who was playing against Monty in the singles, was he said afterwards that he was really shocked with the abuse that Monty was getting. Sorry to interject. It's, I don't think this is the tournament. I think it's a US Open where Monty got the famous, hey, Monty. Yeah, that was Beth Page, I think. Uh, I think that was Beth. Yeah, go on, go on. <laughs> I'm not going to do it. I'll let you do it. But it's a fantastic story. I'm not going to do it either because this is a family podcast. So, um, yeah, I do remember the Beth Page. They had the badges saying, be nice to Monty. But he still couldn't. Monty didn't like uh, American crowds. He didn't like crowds. <laughs> so I, he was easy to get to for the crowds. Um, anyway, I, when it came down to the last few matches, though, I mentioned Paul Laurie had beaten Jeff Maggot four and three, uh, but this huge wave of Ron Jones was commentating for five live, and that great line. He said, The scoreboard is bleeding red, and the top of it was just those top six red victories for the USA. But Olafable was four up with seven to play against Justin Leonard. So the USA got to uh, got to 14 points, but they needed another half. And you had Olafable out in the course. You had Monte against Payne Stewart. And Olafable, when it came down to it, he didn't play well over the closing stretch of holes, but he got to the 17th. And then there was, of course, that 40-foot putt hole by Justin Leonard, and everybody spilled onto the green. And the key thing about that was that they were running and dancing across Olafable's line, who still had a putt um, to keep things going. And it was it was that the, the aftermath of it was I remember the the, the press conference and um, and Sam Torrance having a go at Tom Lehman and uh, Paul Laurie being quite strong about it. Alistair Cook, a great broadcaster, wrote a letter from America. It was a real golf devotee later in life, and his missive from America was just how how the the crowd had how the sport had. I'd lost itself there with the crowds. And um, it, there was such strength of feeling that I remember the next Ryder Cup, which of course was 2002, was after 9-11 that Curtis Strange and Santorin said, this is going to be played in the in the right spirit. But again, it was a little bit like Kiowa, amped up even more from that, in that it was, it was horrible at times, the atmosphere, but my goodness, it got people talking about the Ryder Cup and probably stoked things even more for, for Ryder Cups to come in. Yeah, it was peak animosity, wasn't it, between the tours. We were into the infancy of World Golf Championship. The European Tour was kind of punching its weight much more than it, it does now. They were rivals. They were deadly rivals of the PGA Tour. And, of course, the PGA Tour still had all the, the resources and were was, was still way bigger. But the players who were in that, European team, Westwood, Clark, Sanderlin, Vandervelt, Coltart, Parnovic, Harrington, Jimenez. At that time, Montgomery, Garcia, they were all playing predominantly in Europe. And that's a completely different scenario to the one that we have now, where everybody is basically American-based. Very few European-based players in the European team. So the dynamic has altered 
massively. Then there was a huge chip on the European shoulders, but there was also a, a sense of triumphalism. They'd won in 95, they'd won in 97. Sevi Ballesteros was this talismanic figure as well. And so that all went into the pot with America seriously hurting, having lost the previous two uh, Ryder Cups as well. So that, yeah, the, the, the level of animosity that was there, it spilled over into those Boston crowds. And it's hard to imagine it getting like that again, I think, Eddie. Yeah, I think it's impossible to imagine, and I don't think it's going to happen. Um, you know, I watched Justin Thomas yesterday in his press conference talk about his friendship with Rory, yet when he gets on the course, he hates him. Don't believe it. You know, it's impossible to have that kind of, you can't have that dichotomy appear. It just doesn't happen. You, you either genuinely hate somebody or you don't. I mean, hate's a strong word, and you get the impression that Seve and Sergio and a number of these guys, they genuinely didn't like the Americans. They genuinely didn't like playing them. Uh, and they didn't like playing in America and they hated the crowds and, and that spurred them on. And I, I believe them when they say that. So it's not going to happen, Ian, as you say, that's a bygone era, unfortunately. And we touched on this a few podcasts ago, I think, and uh, it's a real shame for the Ryder Cup. That being said, there's you know, going to have to try and engender in some way some emotion. And, and I'm sure that the competitive nature and element of the Ryder Cup will, will in and of itself do that, but uh, not to the same degree. And when we play in our match against you, Eddie, we like you off the course, but there will be hatred on the course and that animosity. We'll try and play it in an environment where there is quite a, a feisty crowd as well. I think Beth Page for the next, it's Beth Page next round, comes now. Sorry, I doubt myself there. That will be quite, uh, quite raucous. I'm not sure it's going to be particularly raucous here. There's a huge crowd though coming in for the practice days. So, uh, uh, it's going to be a good crowd, but um, not sure exactly what the atmosphere is going to be like. I mean, I think the crowds will still be intimidating, and I think that the European crowds are just as capable as the Americans of potentially going over the top, and I think that is a growing issue in golf. We've touched on the betting side of it, but also the drinking side of it, the, the nastiness that was around with Brian Harmon at the Open Championship as well. I think we have to be really, really careful with that here this week, and especially in Beth Page with the New York crowds next time. But I think if you go back to the 1990s, the early 2000s, there was a bit more animosity between the players. That's what I'm, I'm talking about. There was that, well, we play on the European tour, and you play over there, and you might lord it with your courtesy cars, and we sit in our minibuses, blah de blah de blah but we are just as good as you, if not better. And and that was a, a driving force. And that dynamic just can't exist anymore, can it? No, it can't really. It is what it is. Yeah, but if you were on the team, Eddie, that's the thing. If you were on the team because you are, you're European to your core, you love your, 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 your and you would be going, yeah, you would be very much us and them. Well, and inevitably they'd pair me with the next French player. So, you know, there'd be a, there would be this kind of fight on the course. Be like those two going at each other again on the first fairway in Rome, me and Mike Lorenzo Vera, you know, brawling in one of the ditches. I could see it happening now. Him hitting me with a baguette and me smacking a fish and chip over his head or something like that. I don't know how it goes. I, I'm, yeah, I'm not having De Buisson as a vice captain. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I, um, I forgot the point I was going to make. Andrew's, Andrew's giving me the microphone, but I've just got this image of baguettes and, and people bashing people on the head with it. Oh, I'll, it'll come back to me. Okay, you have a little think about that point. And uh, well, no, I'm thinking about a baguette against fish and chip fight. So for some reason, anyway, good. We've done, we've done France. We've done Brookline 1999. In fact, I mean, to me, that's an interesting, you know, which weapon of food choice would be most destructive of the Europeans? Baguette. You're not going to beat a baguette, especially if it's two days old. What, what, you know, what's John Rahm going to use? Uh, a slab of Manchego? I don't know. I mean, that would hurt, especially if a 115 kilo guy is throwing a slab of Manchego at you. That's going to hurt. Yeah. I mean, or, I, or, I can't think about that. Uh, that uh, would that situation ever arise where John Ram is throwing a slice of Manchego at one of his teammates? It might happen this week. I'm not sure. But anyway, so we are going to move on to your picks, Eddie, in the foursomes of four balls. We've done mine. They were awful. We've done Ian's. They were quite uh, cultured and educated. And I think we've shown in the practice hearings that he's probably going to be pretty close. So who would you put with whom, Eddie? Foursomes, I think I've got a pretty good idea. Four balls, I haven't got a Scooby-Doo. Um, okay. Foursomes. Foursomes. I think Hovland and Ludwig. Hovland and Ludwig are going to play together. That's my prediction in the foursomes. I've, I've gone actually one step further than you both because I've actually predicted who's going to take which tee, odds or evens. Um, and I reckon that Hovland will play off the odds there. Um, 
Hatton and Ram, and I've got Hatton playing off the odds. Lowry and Rory, and I've got Shane playing off the odds. And then I've got I've got Fleetwood and Fitzpatrick um, with Fitzpatrick team off the odds. I was unsure with Tommy. I, th- I could see Tommy playing with Justin. I think Tommy will definitely play in the foursomes, but I think Fitzy, given the nature of the amount of putts that's potentially going to be had by one player, I think you can't, I think it'd be hard to leave Fitzy out of the foursomes. Yeah, I mean, these are good partnerships. I think you and Ian are pretty close to the line, or I think, uh, yeah, I think those are going to be pretty close to the partnerships for the foursomes. Four balls? Well, this is where it gets interesting. Um, to me, the odd player out in all of this is Seb Stracker. I, I haven't a clue who to put him with. But what I've kind of gone for with the four balls is a rookie with experience. So I've gone for Sepp Stracker with Justin Rose. I think Justin's experience, I think he's easygoing and can play with anyone. I've kept Rahm and Hatton together. I've gone for Nikolai Hoygaard and Victor Hovland. And I've gone for Bob and Rory uh, as as the final pairing. Uh, I just, I can just see Rory, John, Victor playing twice on the first day. I think those three guys are most likely going to play five times of the European players. Um, and I just wonder if actually you stick in the, the rookies with some strong experience or really strong players could incent, just could. I think they'd all respond, put it that way. I think Bob and Nicola, I would respond to playing with the big time players in that environment. That's my, that's my little prediction, but I could be way off on the four balls. Yeah, this might be way off, but I heard a whisper on Rose McIntyre as well as a potential one, but that would go with your ethos. Just quickly on the foursomes, there's another point I want to make, but just quickly on the foursomes, what is your thinking on deciding who's going on the the odds and, and the evens? Because that's a really interesting aspect, isn't it? The nature of the golf course can determine, you can work out who's most likely to have most putts, most approach shots, uh, and that kind of thing. Yeah, from what I've seen online and gone through it myself, the person who tees off on the odds... Uh, is going to have more approach shots and more putts generally. And the person who tees off on the evens are going to have more tee shots. But I think most importantly, the player who tees off on the even holes are actually going to be faced with some crucial tee shots. I think a holes like number eight, number 12, number 14, number 16, and number 18, should the match get that far. If you can have somebody off the tee that can bomb a driver down 12 and 18 straight, you're going to have a huge advantage. Number eight, you absolutely have to hit the fairway. If you miss the fairway on number eight, I would say you're, your chances of making par fall dramatically. So there's just some really important tee shots that if you find the fairway out there and you need somebody good off the tee, obviously, to, to do that, then I think your chances of winning the hole, even with a par, go up dramatically. So, And that's why I think you've got Ludwig, who's just brilliant off the tee and is a good putter, and then you've got Victor, who's a tremendous iron player. To me, they are a formidable partnership in foursomes around this golf course. And equally, there'll be partnerships on the US team who I think will will be formidable too. You know, Scotty Scheffler is going to have a great game for this course. I think Colin Morikawa is going to be a tough cookie to beat here. Um, So, and there'll there'll inevitably be some players who, and I think this is what's going to be interesting about this Ryder Cup. I think we know the top players are going to be very, very difficult to beat clearly and are going to do pretty well. It's those four or five rookies or those guys in the middle of the pack, like the Wyndham Clarks, um, the Sam Burns, and to our point, you know, the the Bobs and the Sepp Strackers and the Nikolais. However they tend, however they perform, I do think we'll just tip the balance in whoever ends up winning. And we, I don't really know how that's going to pan out. But um, you can definitely strategize this course in foursomes quite well. And I think that's something that Luke will have definitely thought about. And that's why I think there are pairings that do really stack up in the foursomes. And the other interesting thing is that obviously the captain can decide what order you're going to to play in. And traditionally, Europe, when it, they've been at home, uh, have started off with four balls and then played the foursomes in the afternoon. But Donald has gone with foursomes first and four balls second. The last time that happened at home was 1993, which was the last time Europe lost at home. I'm not saying that is the, the reason why it happened. Luke was asked about that this week. Uh, he said, well, traditionally, we are stronger in the foursomes. The Americans struggle more with the alternate shot format. So we want to get off to a fast start. I don't know how much I would read into that. That seems like one of those intangibles that it's hard to quantify. That being said, I do think that Europe have a great opportunity to dominate the foursomes across two sessions. When I think about those four pairings, assuming they do what they do well, they're all going to be really, really difficult to beat as pairings. And I could easily see across the two foursome sessions, Europe winning 6-2. Four balls, yeah, much more up in the air. But uh, 
the Americans are going to have to rein themselves in around this golf course. This is going to be the thing, I think, of some of the players. They're going to rein themselves in, play with discipline and play well. And if they're up against it early doors and then they start to push it. So to Luke's point, if you get a 3-1 or even a 4-0 foursome start and the Americans feel they need to start pushing it in the afternoon, that isn't going to fly around this course in Rome. So um, I can see the strategy potentially working for Luke. But like I say, there are a lot of unknowns. We are heading off into the roll afternoon uh, to go out and do a few things. I'm going to watch Dude Perfect uh, in the celebrity match. And I think that's just about it. I got a couple of emails that I didn't mention yesterday on, uh, on other golfing matters from James. He's been enjoying the chipping forecast enormously, so much so that he decided to attend a Give Golf a Go session at the local club and he loved it a uh, decade after he last won golf club. Oh, uh, you probably know this place, Abingdon Drayton Park Golf Club, JD Golf Academy. Is that? I know it very well. I used, I used to hit balls there until about nine months ago when I moved. Yeah. Okay. He got uh, so he's uh, he's been hitting balls there, and he's called. He called his dad, James did, and he was thrilled and surprised by the news. Oh, proud Scott, his dad. So from, following a similarly long hiatus after decades of playing, uh, the proud Scott was giddy with excitement as he promised to dust off his clubs and get back down the range. His excitement was only trebled as we discussed the prospect that he would get the long-awaited chance to play with his son at his favourite game. That's nice. That's quite a, quite a well, it's, quite it's nice ironic thing. as well, isn't it? Because I was when he saw me hit balls, I was the reason he gave up because he was. And then he's he's listened to the podcast, and that's why he's come back intimidated. Anyway, hmm. you've inspired two people to get back into golf. He says, "Well, soon you'll be bickering, and a massive family rift will occur." As one of you says, you moved your marker a few inches closer. The other and anyway, good good luck to you, Dominic Doherty, dear TCF. Good, he's on board with that. I was mildly diverted by your recent discussion about players with multiple E's in their name. I am unhealthily fascinated by the fact that the South African player Christian Bezoidenhout's name manages to use fourteen different letters of the alphabet. Surely, no other player, past or present, can usurp this achievement. I don't, I don't know that that's possible. Fourteen letters is impressive. Um, this is the kind of territory we're drifting into towards the end of this pod. But thank you, Dominic Doherty, uh, for your podcast, uh, for your podcast, for your email. Uh, I would like to Matt Wallace is is he on is he on site yet? Because he's joining the Five Live team. Uh, he's coming tomorrow, so it'd be interesting to have uh, Matt along with our commentary team that also includes Paul Waring, European Tour player Graham Storm, Andrew McGee, who is always entertaining. Terrific. Uh, Andrew McGee is with us, often part of our Masters coverage. He always comes over for the for the Ryder Cups as well to give the American perspective, as he says. Um, so, yeah, really, like the usual, usual suspects. And, you know, we're going to be all over uh, BBC Radio, BBC Sounds uh, for the three days of competition. And, we yeah, we love it. And we get told that people love it all the time as well. And um, I, I'm 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 quite fearful about the walk though. It's going to be tough in these temperatures, and with all the undulations and all the crowds in there, I think um, it'll be a long lie down next week. I miss doing the radio enormously. I write a write a first radio one I did was 2002, and every and it's we say it every time it happens, but it's the only sporting event where you are there right on the, the edge of the green, whispering away. You're right in the middle of it. And it's just such a privilege for anyone to be commentating on, on that. And it's uh, an extraordinary event. Instead, I was sitting on my fat backside, not fat, uh, in the TV compound, which is down by the fourth hole, just doing commentary for highlights. But they go out 8 o'clock in the evening, every evening on BBC. So they'll get some good figures as well. I think that's how a lot of people will end up watching the Ryder Cup. So look forward to doing that. Eddie will be, how will you be consuming it? Well, I will be watching this on the television, but the radio last week, I'm sure, would have been so much better than the television. And I'm sure you've gone over it, but the television coverage at the Solheim was just abysmal. So um, the radio would have been the place to be last week. And I'm sure it will be this week, Ian, but I, I'm a visual kind of learner, you know, and I have to be involved. I'm immersive, you know, slightly autistic, apparently. So, um, yeah, but with uh, with Ian's descriptions and John Murray and ABB and Kat, you are getting the pictures. You're getting pictures created in your head. So, um no, good. Enjoy the TV. Enjoy the TV. That is obviously the way to, if you want to, to consume it. But uh, radio is something special at the Ryder Cup. It really is. Matt Wallace joining the Five Live team. So I think Matt has, with the disappearance of the name Nigel, Matt has gone the other way. Because there are 37 people at the BBC production team called Matt, and now Matt Wallace as well. If you can't remember anybody's name in the BBC team, just shout out Matt. And somebody will uh, say, yes, they're going to help you. That's a thing that will die out in 20 years. I'm sure of that. That's a, that's a Gen Xer and a 
Yeah, maybe a millennial name, isn't it? I can't yeah. think of any babies being called Matt or Matthew at the moment. Well, the name, the name Matthew, do you think, is a, is a recent? It's, I think that's going to experience a downfall. That's like the, the Chinese demography. It's in, a, it's in a real decline. Mark, Luke and John, they're all these modern names. Right, anyway, uh, and uh, just one final thing. Where we started with the serious and sad news of, uh, of Michael Bernalek's death. Something came out after the pod last week that we didn't get to mention, but Gary Woodland, uh, he's um, had an operation on a brain tumor, so... Obviously, everyone wishes Gary Woodland all the best, the 2019 US Open champion. So uh, we'll leave with best wishes to Gary Woodland. Didn't play a Ryder Cup despite having won a, a major. It was sort of in the intervening years. So all the best to Gary Woodland and all the best to all the teams in the uh, competing in the Ryder Cup this week. It's going to be something special. It always is. We'll be back on Saturday evening to do a little bit of something. Hopefully, yeah. If I'm uh, if I've survived uh, 72 holes round uh, round round the uh... The undulating uh, hills of Marco Simone, but um, yeah, we'll we'll be digesting it all. Quick forecast, score forecast for chipping forecast. Overall, it is going to be Europe 15, USA 13. Eddie? Oh, I'm so on the fence. This is going to be dreadful. 14 all. That would never. A Solheim Cup first time, Ryder Cup is going to happen again. 14 all. I was going to say 15 to 13, so I'll say 14 and a half, 13 and a half. I think Europe are going to edge it. I've got that feeling. So there we are. We will uh, reconvene uh, soon to pick over the, the, the Ryder Cup, either in the middle or at the end, hopefully in the middle. But I am off to buy a particularly sturdy baguette and just start clubbing spectators indiscriminately. I'm not going to do that. What am, what am I saying? Anyway, uh, bye-bye from the chipping forecast. Oh, one last thing as well. If you have trouble sleeping... Actually, a lot of you will listen to the chipping forecast for just such a purpose. But um, just to confuse you even more, there is a thing that BBC Sounds does called the sleeping forecast, which it involves people just reading out various quite mundane things. And it's for people to listen to. They put some soothing music behind it uh, to, to nod off to, to sleep. And I did one for them. And it's, it is the sleeping forecast. And I basically just go through the 2002 Ryder Cup at the Belfry, uh, droning on about that. So that might help you get to sleep. So, uh, but we will see you again shortly on the chipping forecast. Andrew weighs more than me. And that completes this edition of the chipping forecast. Wishing you a safe and pleasant night. Holding pocket.